rather than taking our, our valuable worship time in a little bit, we've got a little more time right now. I want to say how thankful I am to have been here this weekend. I've really enjoyed meeting you all and getting to know some of you. Um, it's been a pleasure, and I want you to know how thankful I am to have had the opportunity to be here. Our day will slip away from us quickly, and then after our afternoon service, I'll need to hit the road fairly quickly. So if I don't get to talk to you again, I just want you to know how much I, I value this opportunity to be here with you. I do want to add, and I thought of this this morning, that this afternoon service, after worship, potluck, and then another worship, um, I, I recognize, I've sat through those before, after a meal, man, that's hard, isn't it? So I want you to know that I am not going to preach as long this afternoon as I have the previous two nights, okay? Um, I, rec I, I was watching the clock, and I wanted to get you out of here on the hour, but I, I went the full 40, 45 minutes. I promise you this afternoon, I am not going to preach for 40, 45 minutes, all right? I will do, I will, it's dangerous. I will commit to under 30 minutes, all right, for the afternoon service because, again, I've sat through that when, after morning worship, t you've been here for two or three hours, you've been... I mean, it's 9 o'clock. By 1 o'clock, you will have been here four hours, and you'll be sitting on a heavy stomach, a heavy meal. You'll be full. So I promise I'm not going over, to overkill. We'll all be ready to, to knock that out. Um, but it's a, I think what we're going to do this afternoon at 1 is a valuable way to end our time together. Let me add a couple other things just to kind of wrap up our time together. I, I make fun of Ben, give Ben a hard time for his illustrative nature. Uh, but boy, I love, love, love Ben and Jensi, and uh, I'm thankful for them and thankful for uh, the impact that he's had on, on my life. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I love you guys. I'm thankful for you guys. And um, I've enjoyed getting to know Kyle this weekend. We'd never met before, and so I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that. Uh, I love Jay Hall. Um, got to, like I said, got to spend a little time. I'm watching his amazing uh, disc golf skills yesterday. Um, love the Burnetts, and I just love, love all these people that I know. Um, I want to throw out one more connection. Last night when I mentioned this, that little note from Mama Jean, several of you, a handful of you came to me and said, now Mama Jean's daughter goes to Snellville, I think is what you said. So that was kind of a, an interesting connection. Here's another one, and I don't know if this will spark any memories or not, because it's going to go back a few years. My wife's grandparents attended here at some point back in the day. Now, I sent a message to my mother-in-law. Uh, my grandmother-in-law is still living, um, and I tried to find out when that was. But they came here, the, the Hatchets were their name, uh, Emmett and Margie Hatchet. I think they were a part of a group that then went to help plant the church at Winder, um, I maybe have all my names wrong or something like that, but then they, they left here with a group to help, um, kind of with the blessing. They didn't leave the church because they were mad. They went with the blessing of this church to help plant a church, um, some, I think, Winder. I don't even know that for sure. Maybe there was another place out there. Anyway, um, the, my wife's grandparents have a connection and attended here at least for, for some time. I think in the year around 2003, they moved to, to West Tennessee. Um, so if you, know, if you knew the hatchets, come come tell me. I saw some heads nodding. Uh, they were special, special people. Uh, and Miss Hatchet is still alive, living with my in-laws uh, now. I want to go ahead and, and throw this, this next slide up here um, and show some statistics to you. Now, I recognize that's nearly impossible to see. I can barely see it back. But this is, um, this is a study that was done, or at least published earlier this year um, by Gallup. And basically the question they were asking in their survey was, is are you a member of either a church, synagogue, or mosque? Like it's about church religious membership. 
And as far back as their data goes, back into the 1940s, about 70% of Americans considered themselves to be the member of some religious body. Again, we're talking about either a church, a mosque, or a synagogue. And that number stayed pretty much the same all the way up through the 90s. But when you get to about the year 2000, things start dipping down below 70%. You got down to about 60% by 2010. But there's been a significant drop off over the past 10 years, really over the past 20 years. And it's dropped from about 70% down to, for the first time since they've been doing this, below 50%. And in 2020, this number was about uh, 47% of Americans claimed to be members of some sort of religious, religious group. And that's fascinating. What I'm not trying to do here is bemoan the cultural situation that we're in. I think we spent a lot of time doing that. Some of that's a bit of a waste of time, but it's interesting to be aware of, of where we're at. Connected to that, I think it was Barna produced um, this interesting research uh, earlier this year as well. And so I just showed you the statistics of church membership. Here's what church attendance looks like in the United States. And again, that's, near, that's definitely nearly impossible to see, but if you go back, if you can barely see it, but to your far left, that's 1993, and the number was in the, basically 45%, and it ran in the low 40s. So church, reg, weekly church attendance, in the early 90s, all the way through the 90s, ran in the low 40s. Um, you can see what happened in the late 2000s, about 2010, between 2005 and 2010, it peaked upward, or it trended upward, and got up to about 48% in 2009 of weekly church attendance. But since 2010, really since about 2012, it has dropped off pretty severely. And so it went from, in 2009, to from 48% all the way down in 2019 and 2020, and so it's not just a COVID thing, to below 30%. It's kind of hovered around 30%. So that gives you an idea of how, in our culture, how Americans view church and how they view church membership, and how they view church attendance. Now, I've shown you these statistics, and what's crazy is just this morning, I hopped on Facebook for just a minute, and I follow Christianity Today, and they published a new study, and I, I didn't have time to get it in my PowerPoint, so I took some screenshots of it, and they, they based what their, their research on these studies, and they asked people based on, okay, how often you go to church, do you have a religious preference? And here's what was really fascinating. Of the people who said, I'm not a member of any group. All right, so I showed you that a second ago. In fact, I'll go back to that one. Um, these folks who said, I'm, I'm a member or not a member, and it dipped down below 50%. So picture that group of people, 50% of the American population, 53% of the American population who says, I'm not a member anywhere. Here's what the brand new research this week, I just saw it this morning, Here's what they found out. Of that group of people who's not a member of church anywhere, 25% of them will go to a church once a year. All right, so just because they say, I'm not a church member, doesn't mean that they're not going to church anywhere. 10% of people who say, I'm not a church member anywhere, 10% of them go to church weekly. Now that's, that's to me is pretty fascinating. And it says something about how people view church membership, that 10% of people, they're not members of any, any religious body, but they go to church weekly. And then here's the other piece of it that I found interesting, and I want to make sure I get it right. Again, I took a screenshot of it. Of those people who were not members anywhere, 43% of them considered themselves to be some sort of Christian. 
Like, as they check the box, what religion are you? 43% of them checked Christian. 40% of them said nothing. And that would include agnostic, atheist, or just the none, no religion. But isn't it it interesting, isn't it fascinating, that of this 50% of our population who is not a member of any religious body, 40% of them claim to be Christian, and 10% of them go to church every week. Now, I tell you all of that to illustrate the fact that as a culture, we kind of got some some weird views about church membership. And while we may value Christianity and there's a significant portion of the population who would check the box Christian, and that's a decreasing number, but there's still a significant number, that doesn't necessarily mean they value church. And maybe over the years, for those of you who've been around a little while, you've seen this happen. Here's one more statistic for you. And then if you hate statistics, I'm done with them now, I promise. In 2014, Barna did some research on millennials. Now, we talked a lot about millennials five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, um, and we've kind of moved on from that, but I still think it's interesting. 59% of millennials who grew up in church dropped out. That's, that's a lot. That's, that's a significant number and something to at least, at least think about. Now we're kind of waiting on the data for Gen Z, the next generation after the millennials. Now, again, I say all of that to illustrate that people are are kind of funny about the church. And we've seen a decrease in church attendance and church membership, and people are not as engaged in church as they once were. As I think about those statistics, those are not just numbers for me. I want to know how that impacts me. And so I thought back to the kids that I, the teenagers that I grew up with, and I look back to my, my own church culture in West Virginia, and it's not like it is here where there's a lot of churches. So we kind of, it's kind of a regional thing, and we were all members of smaller churches. There were no youth ministers. We just didn't have the money for that. And basically what happened is we gathered every summer at church camp, the whole north-central part of West Virginia. We all gathered at church camp. And so those were my church friends. The guys, that, that, and guys and girls that I got together with at church camp every summer, and, and I loved that time together. And I, I reflected back on the group that I hung out with the most, and there were about 20 of us. And we spent a lot of time together at church camp, and then we'd get together once or twice throughout the year. And these were, these were the people that were my age, and we spent a lot of time together. And, and I'd say these are strong leaders in their youth group, leaders at church camp. And as I look back on that 20 The best I can tell, and you can kind of keep up with people nowadays through social media, the best I can tell, 10 of them are no longer in church. That's better than the national trend of around 60%, but half of them are no longer in church. Now, these weren't just average churchgoers. These were kids who were deeply involved in church camp, and at least every summer came across as pretty serious about their faith. So I narrowed that down to my, kind of my eight closest guy friends at church camp, and we got together at least every couple months. There were a couple of us that were together, three or four of us that were together pretty much all the time. We lived close enough. But we got together every couple of months, eight, eight of these guys. Again, close friends. We went to church together. We'd, we'd go to each other's congregations all the time. I mean, these guys were leaders in their, in their local church, and the same thing is true. Half of them, half of them are no longer in church. And man, that that breaks my heart because I love these folks and I want them to be engaged. I want, I want to spend eternity with them and I want them to be engaged in their faith and, and they're not, there's something has happened in the way that people view church and the value and importance of church. The elders have asked me specifically this weekend or the leaders here have said, okay, we want you to hit the basics of the faith and 
part of that, and they, they said this, we want you to talk about the church and why the church is important and how we might connect with our community and what we can say to our community about the value of this. And so the word that I'm throwing out there for this lesson is together. If you've been with us this weekend, as Ben said a moment ago, we said Friday night that we are loved deeply by our Heavenly Father. And last night we talked about how we can be forgiven and how we respond to this incredible gift that God offers us. But when someone makes a decision to put Christ on in baptism, God doesn't just leave us there. He gathers us with his people. And we are intended to be together as the family of God. Now I know that for most of you this is nothing new and you believe this and this is important to you. But let me, let me try to do something. Here's what I want to try to do this morning in our Bible class time. I want to try to convince three different groups of you of just how important and valuable the church is. So there's, let me tell you who these th three groups are. So the first group is those who are not members of a church. Maybe, maybe you're a guest in the auditorium today. Maybe you're watching online right now live or maybe down the road. And, and you don't really know what church is about. You've never been a member of a church and... Maybe you've listened to the other lessons and you're processing, okay, maybe this church thing is something I want to I try. I want to convince you this morning of the value of church. But then there's a second group that I also think is very important, and that's those of you who are in high school and college who at some point are going to have to make a decision as to whether or not you're going to stay. And while most of those folks are high school and college, maybe there's some of you who are a little bit older who are struggling with your faith and you're questioning whether church is something that you want to be engaged in. But I think especially for the younger crowd, you're kind of, at some point, your faith is going to have to become your own. Your parents aren't going to drag you to church anymore. You're going to have to decide whether you're going to be engaged in this or not. And I want to try to convince you guys of how important church is because I want you to stay. And then the third group is the rest of you. You're not going anywhere. You've been engaged in church and you love the church and always have and, and always, well, you're not going anywhere. Here's what I want to do for you. I want to convince you that the church of Jesus is still alive and well and that you can play a part in helping to keep the next generation engaged. And the way I want to do this, I suppose, is just by kind of giving you one principle and then thinking through this principle a little bit. And here's the principle that I want to give you and, and we'll walk through. It's, it's just this. Let me get this to the next slide. There it is. Here, here's the principle. We were designed with needs that the church was designed to meet. We were designed with needs that the church was designed to meet. You see, the, one approach to this is just say, okay, let's look at the Bible. Here's why the church is important. And here's the bullet points, and you better get engaged. But for those who need some convincing, here's what I want to try to tell you. I want to tell you this morning that God designed us with specific needs. And then he designed the church, and the church is actually designed to meet several of those needs, many of those needs. And so for those of you who are not engaged in church and maybe thinking about it, I want you to know that, that the church actually can meet some of your deepest needs in life. For those of you who have to make a decision at some point whether or not you're going to stick around and whether you're going to own this faith that, that your parents have attempted to pass down to you, I want you to know that there are certain things that, there are certain needs that you have that you can't, that can't be met anywhere else. And so you need the church. And in reality, the church needs you. And then for those of you who've been around for a long time, I want you to know that, that this church, that the church of Jesus, is still capable of meeting needs of the next generation. 
and you play a part in helping to meet those needs. So what are those needs? How, does, how can the church meet the needs, some of our deepest needs, if it's true that we were designed with needs that the church was designed to meet? Let me give you a couple, three or four, well, maybe five or six or seven examples of this. Number one, we need meaningful relationships. We need meaningful relationships. Now, if there's anything that the church was designed to do, it's to meet this need. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, or rather, rather than 1 Timothy chapter 3, let's try um, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. I love this contrast that we were, we were dead in our sins, we were alienated, and Paul's speaking to non-Jewish people, to Gentiles, which I'm guessing is most of us. He says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You know what Paul is saying here? You're part of the family. When you become a follower of Jesus, when you recognize that you're loved by God and that you receive his forgiveness, you become a part of this, this family. And if you've been in church very long, you know that there's nothing like this family. And if you've ever gone through a difficult time and this family sustains you, you think things like, I don't see how people survive without this family. Now, I meant to mention just a second ago, there, there's a verse in Acts that I think is helpful as we contemplate what the church is all about. Acts chapter 20, Paul is talking to the elders from Ephesus that he's writing to right here. And this is probably a little bit later on in his life. And so he... He gives them instructions as to what, the el what elders should do and what this should look like. And in Acts chapter 20, he's describing their role as elders. And in verse 28, he says this. He says that they are called to pay careful attention. Acts 20 verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Listen to this. To care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood. That's a really powerful and beautiful description, but here's why I think it's important. There's this tendency among people in our religious world, and probably these statistics that I showed you bear this out, to say, I want Jesus. Man, I love Jesus. I want Jesus, and I want what Jesus has to offer, but I don't really want the church because the, the church has messed me up, and the church has wronged me, and there are hypocrites in the church. And they have all these reasons they don't want to be in the church, but they want relationship. They want Jesus, but they don't want the church. Listen, if Jesus bought and purchased the church with his blood, then you can't separate Jesus and the church. You can't say, I want personal relationship with Jesus, but I don't want the church. No, if Jesus bought the church with his blood, then when we decide to become followers of Jesus, We've got to buy into what he bought with his blood, and that's, that's the church. And as I've said, in the church, we find meaningful relationships. And if there's ever been a time that we need this, it's now. Because most people, especially the younger generation, have thousands of friends, but very few meaningful relationships. Oh, we've got, in fact, I'm probably friends with some of you on social media, probably a handful of you, and I've never met you before till this weekend. We, were we really friends? I mean, sure, we were brothers and sisters in Christ, yeah, but we weren't really friends. And how many, 
How many of those sorts of relationships do we have? And that's increasingly become the case over the past year and a half as we've gone more and more digital in the way we do things and more and more digital in our relationships. And with all of that digital relationship, we need the reminder that you cannot replace face-to-face, real, live, in-person relationships. I think we discovered that when we had to go digital for church for a little while, that we needed face-to-face relationships. God designed us to need those relationships. Remember I showed you that statistic from 2014 about millennials, 60% 60 of them left church, even though they grew up in church. What Barna did in 2014 is they also asked those who stayed why they stayed. And three or four of the things that I want to show show you this morning come from that study. And here's one of the things they discovered. Those who stayed said that growing up, they developed meaningful relationships intergenerationally. They didn't just hang out with the youth group, but those who stuck, those who stayed in church, those 40%, the study showed that they had, in their growing up years, developed relationships with people across their church, meaningful relationships, which means when we meet the need that people have for meaningful relationships, they're far more likely to stick. And there's no other place to have those sorts of relationships like the church. So what can you do? If that's the case, how do you do do a better job? How do we do a better job of creating meaningful relationships? Here's my one suggestion on this one. I would encourage you to connect with people on the fringe. Connect with people on the fringe. And what I mean by that is people who are on the fringes of your church who maybe aren't as deeply involved as others and maybe haven't developed those, those meaningful relationships, if those, are the, if those people are gonna stick, they're gonna stay, it's gonna require the people who are kind of deeply engaged in the church reaching out to them and making deeper connections. And we're not always very good at that because we stick to the people that we're already close to, don't we? I like to spend time with the people who are like me and that I already know, and it's harder to reach some of those people and connect with those people who are on the fringes. But here's the reality. Often the people who don't develop these meaningful relationships are the people on the fringes, and that's why they're on the fringe. And what happens to people on the fringe? Eventually they just kind of fade out. Either they get more involved, or eventually they they fade out. I can think of people right now, could name names of the congregation where I preach, of people who are on the fringes. Now some of it is their fault, because they don't make an effort to get more deeply engaged. But some of it's because we haven't, a lot of us haven't made an effort to try to bring them in and develop these meaningful relationships. Five or six years ago, there was a middle-aged man who lived in a, a low-income apartment complex not far from the church where we meet, 10 minutes or so. And he had been in the military, done years of contract work, spent time overseas, and had become disabled because of an injury that he, he received in the Middle East. But now, He wasn't from around our neck of the woods, not from Tennessee. He didn't have anybody. And he was just kind of alone. And somebody from his apartment complex that's not really engaged with our church anymore um, invited him to church. And he came, and we studied the Bible with him, and he became a Christian, and he got engaged. And for a guy who didn't really have many meaningful relationships, his family was pretty messed up, the church gave him exactly what he needs, and he's become an, a vital part of our church. How did that happen? 
because he had a deep need for meaningful relationships. And what did the church do? It met that need. And when we meet those needs, people are going to stick and people are going to want to be a part of this. We were designed with needs that the church was designed to meet. We need meaningful relationships. Here's another thing that we need. And something that the church, a need that the church meets, meet, meets. We need truth. We need regular doses of truth. I mentioned 1 Timothy a moment ago. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul describes the church, or rather 1 Timothy 2 verse 15, 3 verse, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 3 verse 15. Paul kind of gives his purpose for writing this letter, and he says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God in the church, which is the church of the living God, a pillar of and buttress of truth, or maybe a better, more modern way of saying that, it's the English Standard Version, a pillar and foundation of truth. When we lived in Peru, earthquakes were always a potential problem, and so every building had these big concrete pillars that were to protect from the potential earthquakes that, that could occur. When we are members of a local body of believers, when we're members of a church, that church provides us the safe, kind of like those pillars provided safety from earthquakes. A church provides the safety we need in a world full of misinformation. Is there any misinformation out there these days? That's almost a laughable question, isn't it? I mean, our world is just full of misinformation, and no matter where you stand on any cultural issue, it's just, it's just all of this stuff and fake news, and it's just, it's just everyone. We don't know who to believe. And so if there's ever been a time that we need a place where we can find reliable information and we can find truth, sure is now. And the church ought to be that. And I'm convinced if you're kind of on the, on the fence as to whether or not you want to be in a church, and maybe you're watching online, that this church is a place where you can find that foundation of truth. That this church is going to help you be strong in, in those big theological and philosophical questions of life. And not just those big theological questions, but it's going to help you to find a foundation in the everyday questions of life. In that 2014 study about millennials, here's what, here's what they said. The 40% that stayed said they found meaningful relationships. They also, in their church gr growing up, found cultural discernment. Let me tell you what that means. That means growing up, the church helped them to understand how to deal with all the stuff going on in their culture. It wasn't just theology. It wasn't just, here's how to become a Christian and here's what the church is. But the kids who stayed in church after, after they grew up, they said, my church taught me how to deal with stuff going on in our culture. And here's what that looks like in, in 2021. For younger folks, they've got to figure out how they are and what it looks like to interact with people who come from different backgrounds from them. It, it's about how to treat people kindly and how to be Christ-like to people who are in lifestyles that are different from what they've, they've always heard. It's how do, we, how do I treat my gay friends? Now for some of you it's like, really, are there? Yeah, if you're in school, you're going to have gay friends, you're going to have transgender friends. As a follower of Jesus, how do we 
how do we interact with those? If you're interacting with people from, from different backgrounds every single day, what's that look like? We need biblical truth. And biblical truth isn't just saying, here's what sin is and here's not what sin is. Biblical truth is here's how to treat people like Jesus treated them and interact in a way that honors God and still treats people in a way that we can say, I, I genuinely love my neighbors. And folks who stayed said when they were growing up, they got that. They got that. The church, can, is, that, is that too much to ask? Is it too much to ask for young people and people who are interested in church to say, you know what, I need to know how to, how to live like Jesus in my culture. No. Who else can do that better than the church? In a world full of misinformation, who else can? We can. We, can. we need a healthy dose of truth, and the church provides that. We were designed with needs that the church was designed to meet. Further, we need to be shepherded by godly leaders. Turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In fact, I'm already there. 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's this beautiful description of what elders should look like, elders and deacons should look like. And I'm not going to take the time to read through this entire list, but for example, example verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, and we could just keep on going. I said this about truth a second ago, but I think it's true here. Is there a vacuum? Is there an absence of godly leaders in our culture? Do we need to look, to be able to find leaders who are godly and trying to follow Jesus and model that? They're not perfect, but they try to model that in everything they do. Wow. I mean, you look around at the leaders in our culture and, and we've got a pretty significant gap in godly leaders. We need to be shepherded by godly leaders. I need to be shepherded by godly leaders. And so if you're on the fence about church, you're not a member of a church, as you search for, and you're thinking about becoming, as you search for a church, you want to find a church. Again, if you're watching online or a guest with us today, you want to, you want to find a church that is following the biblical model of church leadership. If Jesus bought the church and it's his church, then we ought to do church the way that Jesus wants. And scripture sets up a, a model for biblical leadership. And that model looks something like this. The church is to be led by elders who shepherd and oversee the church. A plurality of elders. And a church ought to have deacons who serve under those elders in different ministries that the elders have said, here's what we need you to do. And a church ought to have evangelists, and evangelists are evangelists who preach, the word, preach and teach the word as their role. You need to find a church that looks like that. Can I give you some good news? And I know that sometimes we get kind of critical of other groups. It is increasingly the case that evangelical churches are moving towards a plurality of elders. Like if, if you look into it and kind of do your own research, they have a lot of churches are saying, man, we have not done this right, and they are moving in that direction. Isn't it good news? Isn't it good news when people are moving closer to the truth? Of course it is. But I think it also helps to solidify the fact that when it comes to church leadership, We've, we've been doing this well, and we've been doing this right. We haven't gotten everything perfect, but this is an area in which we've, we've been doing well, and we want to move in this direction. We need this. I am who I am today because of the godly men who have shepherded me along the way. I mean, I could go back through my entire story, every church that I've been a part of, from high school all the way down, and say, yeah, that guy, 
boy, he was a lot older than me, and maybe it sure seemed like we didn't have a lot in common, but I am who I am today because he shepherded me. I'll just mention one. When I was in high school, we had an elder. He was a middle-aged guy um, who taught, we didn't have a youth minister. He taught our teenage class Wednesday nights, every Wednesday night, for my entire high school career. There were no quarter breaks. There were no like, okay, he taught for a quarter. No, at our church, he taught for seventh through 12th grade every single Wednesday night. Do you think he had any sort of impact on me? You better believe he did. And it wasn't just because he sat there and he taught us something. No, it was because he modeled what he taught and he talked about things that made sense to us. I needed that as a teenager and I need that now and I'm thankful for the godly leaders who have impacted me. We need this, and if there's ever been a time that we need godly leaders to shepherd us, it's in a world where there just aren't, aren't a whole lot of these. And the church provides, it meets that need that we have such a deep need for. Finally, or not finally, not yet, you'd like to think finally. We were designed with needs the church was designed to meet. We need to use our talents for the glory of God. Here's another one. 2014, the millennial study those millennials who stayed said this. They said, we stayed, one of the reasons we stayed is because the church helped me to identify, develop, and use my abilities for the glory of God. And as I've taught college students, one of the things that I've discovered is they want to be used and they want to use their talents for the glory of God. And sometimes we're like those ornery young people, they're so needy. Really? Is it really too much to ask to say, hey, I've got talents and I want to use them for God? Well, of course not. In Romans chapter 12, here's what Paul says about the abilities that God has given us. Romans chapter 12, and we could do 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as well. But Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. All of us have been given an ability or multiple abilities by God. And he expects us to use them. And the church is one of those entities, probably the most significant entity, that allows us to use those abilities all for the glory of God. And churches, church leaders, ought to be in the business of helping people discover their talents, develop those talents, and use those talents. And you know what? That takes creativity. Because what I'm learning from, from college students is that to use their talents means more than just saying a closing prayer or passing out communion. Now, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to minimize anything, so I'm going to be careful how I say this, but I think you get what I'm trying to, trying to say here. When someone stands up front, or I don't know how you guys, well, we're not even passing communion out anymore, so there goes my illustration. But I'm afraid what's happened is we sometimes said with young men, okay, you need to use your talent, so we're going to have you stand up, do the communion pose, and then walk up and down an aisle passing a plate around. Now, is that an act of service that is needed in a local church? Yes. Is anybody really using their talents when they do that? I mean, we could teach monkeys to do that, right? We, we could trade, I could probably trade a dog to go up and down and carry a little basket and pass it down. 
It doesn't, that doesn't take any talent. Now, it's important. It's an act of service that needs to be done. So don't mishear me saying that's not, that's not important. But I think we make the mistake of saying as long as we get them up front and have them do the communion pose, that somehow they're using their talents. That's not true. We need to help everyone figure out what God-given abilities they have and then how they can use that. And many of those God-given abilities are not just to be or sometimes can't even be used in a church building. We need to help folks discover how they're gifted by God and how they can use those gifts inside the church building sometimes, but often throughout the week for the glory of God. And so if, if someone comes along and has a passion for, for example, a specific region of the world or a passion for orphans or a passion for serving the poor, what should our response as a church be? Well, that's not really one of our ministries here. No, our response should be, okay, we may not have that ministry and we may not have the resources to invest heavily in it, but we want to support you in that. And we're thankful that you have that passion. Instead, sometimes, I think with our young people especially, it's like, well, no, that's not what we... What if we said, hey, if you want to do that to the glory of God, that's awesome and we want to help you. Three or four years ago, we had a student who was doing a senior project, high school senior project, and she, we had a missionary in Africa. And she kind of loved that work and loved what was happening. And so she decided she was going to sell t-shirts to raise money for Bibles in Africa. Now, that was not a, a ministry of our church. But do you think, you think we sat back and said, well, come on now. We, we give to Africa through the contribution, so we're not going to buy any. Well, no, of course we bought our t-shirts. Well, again, we didn't, it wasn't a ministry of our, of our church. We support our missionaries through our local contribution. But if she personally had a passion to do something, was trying to raise some money for Africa, what's, what can the church do? We can support our young people in those sorts of things and the things that they're passionate about. We need to use our talents for the glory of God. And those who do so stick. They stay in church. And isn't it amazing that this need that we have is a need that's met by the local church? I have to a quarter till, right? They're going to ring a bell at 20 till? Okay. A um, couple more. We need to be active spiritually. Like, we, we have a need. Anyone who is act, not active spiritually doesn't stick. You ever heard of spectator Christianity? You know what spectator Christianity is? It's when you sit in the seats and you pay pray and get out of the way and you let the elders and the deacons and the preachers do all the work we're just kind of sitting in a pew checking off the box getting things done that's not that's not church membership that's spectator Christianity. that's cultural christianity but it's not biblical christianity we need to be spiritually active to stay spiritually strong and the church provides a place for that to happen let me give you a couple of more really quick well there's my spectator seats we need to worship with the people of God. We were created to worship. You don't believe that? Study the world religions and indigenous religions across the world. People naturally are, they're going to worship something. We were created to worship. And the church provides a venue to worship our God in spirit and in truth. And for those listening online, maybe you want to find a church that worships not just with their hearts, and maybe we all need a reminder to be worshiping with our hearts and to be joyful in our worship, but you want to find a church that worships biblically. And I believe that the Buford Church of Christ does that. We were created with needs that the church was designed to meet. And then last, we need empowered purpose. We need empowered purpose. In Acts chapter 1, do you remember what Jesus says before he ascends into heaven? He says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem, and you're going to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and all to the ends of the earth. 
But you remember what he says? He doesn't say, get to work right now. You've got a purpose, you've got a mission, go get it. He says, wait. And so what? So the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them. You ever been working on something with, a, with your kid and you need to leave the room for a minute? Maybe it's something that you're trying to teach them how to do it. And before you leave the room, you say, don't touch a thing. Don't, don't touch, because you know what'll happen. They'll mess it up. Don't touch a thing. My dad still does that with me. I don't get, I don't understand why. Don't touch anything. It's almost like Jesus says that to his disciples. He looks at him and says, listen, I'm going to go to heaven. Don't touch anything until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes and empowers you for this mission and for this purpose. And they wait, and the Spirit does come, and it empowers them. And that's a reminder that God, God doesn't use perfect, super talented people to fulfill his mission, but instead he empowers normal, regular folks to fulfill his mission. I don't know if you... I've heard the story, or probably several of you have, the story of General George Marshall. He became the secretary, I think the, the chief of staff for the U.S. Army at the beginning of World War II, about 175,000 members of the Army at that time, not, not terribly prepared for the task. But over the next four or five years, he increased that number to the most powerful military the world has ever known, eight million strong Churchill described him as the organizer of victory, not necessarily a name that all of us have heard. He was, he was the man. I mean, you talk about an all-star, a hero, he was it. But as you read the book of Acts, here's what you discover. God doesn't use a bunch of General George Marshalls to accomplish his task. It's almost as if he uses a bunch of Gomer Piles to fulfill his task. A bunch of guys who were terribly inadequate, imperfect in many ways, but God empowers them to fulfill his purpose. And the same is true today. We all need a purpose in life, but if our purpose is to fulfill the mission of God and to participate in that mission to his glory, if it's just up to us, we're a bunch of zeros. We're a bunch of minor leaguers. He doesn't use a bunch of all-stars. He uses a bunch of minor leaguers. And I'm thankful he does because he empowers us to change the world. And he'll empower you. And I need that. I can't do this on my own, but you better believe I need, I need a mission. We need empowered purpose. So here's what I want you to hear this morning as we wrap up. I simply want you to see the importance of the church because we were designed with needs that the church was designed to meet. And if you're on the fence about church, you're watching online, you don't really know, I want you to know that you need this. There's no other entity on earth other than the church that fulfills needs like the church. You need this. If you're on the fence, if you're thinking, well, I don't know what I'm going to do later on as a young person or a college student, I want you to know that over the course of your life, you need the church to meet some of your deepest needs. And for those of you who have been here for a while and you're not going anywhere, I want you to know that there's hope, that the church is alive and well. But you can't just sit back and defend tradition and say nothing's ever going to change and we're never going to sing a new song. You've got to do your part as a mature, long-term follower of Jesus to reach out to and help meet the needs of the younger generation. You have a role in this, there's hope. Church is not dying. The church can meet needs, but all of us have a part to play in helping to make sure that happens. Remember when Jesus, is that clock, nobody's, I haven't heard a bell, has there been a bell? Just, okay, all right, here's, here's the last thing I'll say. Um, remember when Jesus said in Matthew 16, um, 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not, will not prevail against it. I've always kind of thought of that as, well, thank, thank God that we're protected and nothing's going to happen to the church. The gates of hell will, the gates of hell will, will, not, will not, Satan can't attack the gates. He can't get through the gates. God will protect us. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Let me ask you this. What kind of weapon is a gate? Offensive or defensive? Defensive, right? Nobody going to war is like, all right, guys, we're going to war. Grab the gates, and they grab the gates, and they're going around bashing. No, gates are defensive weapons. And so this is not about the protection of the church. This is about the war we're in. And as we attempt to bring people out of the grasp of Satan and into the kingdom of light, the gates of hell won't stop us. Nothing can stop. Because you know what? You may not like the language here, but I'll, I'll use it anyway. We are hell plunderers. God's people are not meant to sit back and be scared and think, oh, thank God that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Let's hide in our church buildings and, and just trust God to protect us. No. We've got a mission. And the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against us because we are hell plunderers. Rescuing people from the grasp of Satan. And we can't do that on our own. It's only possible by the power of God. And we need purpose. And I need vision. And I need all these meaningful relationships. And praise God that the church meets all those needs. We were designed with needs that the church was designed to meet. Again, thanks for being here. I've enjoyed this weekend with you. I look forward to a couple more lessons.